0: And welcome to the wire your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 4B in Nianjin, Brisbane. And today in the show the
1: picture is not a good one unfortunately. It appears that our teachers are in crisis uh, along a number of dimensions in terms of their mental health and their well-being.
0: A new report shows the education system in WA is not up to standards. We have all the details. Also, a new poll shows Australians won't fly if there's only one operating pilot. And later today...
2: We now have from Combank, NAB and Westpac, effective exit dates from companies that are pursuing new and expanded fossil fuel projects. They all have a commitment to be out by at least the end of 2025.
0: While banks are reducing their funding on fossil fuel projects, advocates say it's not enough. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A new report conducted by Climate Analytics found out the Vitalo Basin fracking project's emissions have been underestimated. The report called Emissions Impossible found out the project would produce up to 11% of Australia's total emissions from 2021. I asked climate and energy policy analyst from Climate Analytics and author of the report, Thomas Hewley, what the report entails.
3: Until recently, fracking or hydraulic fracturing was banned in the Northern Territory. And a few years ago, it turned out that the Northern Territory also holds one of the largest and most promising shale gas reserves in the world, in the Big Daloo Basin. So following this discovery, the Northern Territory government launched what we call the Paper Inquiry, which was a scientific investigation into fracking in order to assess how the Northern Territory could be fracked while mitigating the risk on health, on the environment, on climate. And the final report of the Paper Inquiry came out in 2019, so after this, the Northern Territory Government uh, committed to implement all those recommendations to greenlight basically the fracking of the Beetlew Basin. For that, the federal government and the Northern Territory Government uh, commissioned the CSIRO GZERA, which is the gas industry arm of the CSIO. The CSIRO GZERA final report came out uh, earlier this year, I think it was in February or March, And they did both an estimate of the emissions that will be produced by fracking the Bitalu.
0: One of the things the report found out is that the fracking project will produce more emissions than the 2030 reduction goal under the new Safeguard Mechanism Regulations. How did you come up with that statement?
3: So the goal of the Safeguard Mechanism Reform is to reduce covered emissions from large industrial emitters in Australia from 143 megatons of CO2, which is grossly one quarter of Australia's current emissions, to 100 megatons of CO2 by 2030. And so we found out that the emissions that will be produced in the beta to extract this shale gas and the emission that will be produced when you convert this gas in LNG at the middle arm precinct. So the CSIO zero assesses many different scenarios about the development of the beta loop. So in the smallest scenario, you have a limited production of LNG, but they also assess what they call scenario five, which is a scenario where you have an extensive production of LNG at Darwin and uh, multiple end uses of the gas from the beta loop, for example, for producing green hydrogen, for producing ammonia.
0: What other inconsistencies did the report find about the vitelo-basin fracking project?
3: So when this report came out in February, the full list of assumptions that the csiro g 0 used was not available at the time. So we basically had to reverse engineer their assumptions because of this lack of, of transparency. And so it was a kind of like a puzzle, you know, you have some pieces, you have a lot of missing pieces and you try to fix back everything into place. So the first thing we did, and the most critical thing was to find out what they were assuming regarding what we call methane losses and methane leakage rates. So basically when you extract fossil gas and then you process it and then potentially turn it into LNG, you have methane that leaks at every stage and that's normal. I would say, uh, in an in a oil and gas operation. But methane is a really potent uh, greenhouse gas. And so it is really important to assess accurately how much methane will be leaked. It turned out that the methane loss rate was underestimated by at least 56%, which then impacts the whole life cycle emission estimates. So this has consequences on what we call the upstream uh, emissions.
0: So, Thomas, what are the consequences we face if the Bitaloo project continues?
3: I mean, in our reports, the the consequence we we, we focus the most on is the climate consequences. Fracking the Bitaloo will produce a significant amount of emissions. We found that the CSA Rojizira underestimated the the cumulative total emissions over 25 years, including those occurring overseas by close to 1.5 times Australia's 2021 emissions. So fracking the bitaloo would generate significant emissions, would jeopardise uh, Australia's climate targets.
0: So to avoid a carbon emissions like the report you conducted estimates, what should the Northern Territory and the federal government, like the Australian government, do about this project?
3: Uh, yes, that's a very good question. And I think, of course, the best outcome would be to stop the bitaloo from proceeding. Uh, we know that we must significantly reduce our consumption and production of gas, not only in Australia, but on a global level. There are now cost-efficient alternatives to, to, to the consumption of fossil gas.
0: That was Climate and Energy Policy Analyst from Climate Analytics, Thomas Hewley. A
4: different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio.
0: A report into Western Australia's education system by the state school teachers' union shows the public school system is not working for students or teachers. The report called Facing the Facts recommended class sizes and teacher workloads be reduced. The Wire's contributor from Narda Media, Gerard Matza, asked senior lecturer at Curtin University, Dr. Sol Karnofsky, his thoughts about the education system in WA.
1: Picture is not a good one, unfortunately. It appears that our teachers are in crisis uh, along a number of dimensions in terms of their mental health and their well-being. And the SSTUWA report, which I must say is an incredibly comprehensive look uh, at our state education system. The panel members and their team went across all of Western Australia, including a number of regional and remote locations, and really sat down and spoke to teachers and school leaders about how they're going. And it shows that our teachers are working incredibly long hours, in fact, excessively long hours. They're also uh, feeling stressed and feeling like they can't cope. Many teachers, uh, in fact, the majority of teachers in our state at the moment uh, are struggling and considering leaving. What can you tell us about the impacts of the school system and some of these factors on, on the students? Unfortunately, we have created a... School system, a mass school system, uh, that is really not fit for purpose anymore. It, it was created in the late 1800s on a kind of factory model of education where, you know, kids are, are batched by their date of manufacture and we push them through the various levels of schooling and we bolt on literacy skills, numeracy skills, you know, how to be a good citizen, teach them about democracy and how to enter the workforce. And I just don't think that what we are doing in our schools now uh, really meets the needs of our diverse communities in terms of language, in terms of culture. We haven't kept pace with the modern world, and I think young people see that. And then we put them into environments where their choices are taken away from them by and large, where their autonomy is decreased. And we've really lost touch with what young people need and what they want. If we look at other parts of the world that have moved to more democratic ways of schooling, where young people are collected in rooms, not necessarily by age, but by interest and sometimes by ability, where the school days are far less structured, where the curriculum is uh, based on the student's interest and what they're keen to learn and what they want to do and and know about the world you know these are the kinds of um, ideas we should be embrace, embracing here in australia the review from the state school teachers union that came out made a series of recommendations could you maybe just speak to one or two of those recommendations that you think could make the biggest difference Look, I think first and foremost, teacher workload needs to be addressed. The panel found when they went and spoke to uh, teachers all across the state, uh, they were told time and again that they... Teachers want to be spending time on planning quality learning experiences and really delivering excellent learning outcomes, and they just don't have the time to do that anymore. They're doing more and more administrative work. In fact, it's increased by something like 90% uh, over the last few years. Any little infraction or issue that comes up in the class time has to be accounted for on on central uh, systems. And it just, you know, piles up and piles up and and teachers just feel overwhelmed. Were there any recommendations in the report in particular for educating First Nations students? Yes, I think, uh, look, the report was a little bit more um, circumspect, we might say, around that because, you know, they they, they know that one of the most critical... Steps that you need to take with regard to any First Nations policy is consultation with First Nations communities. But, you know, look, they did note that um, a lot of the processes that apply to, you know, these policies and these issues and these challenges that... Uh, the report talks about in terms of all of Western Australian public schools are particularly acute in Aboriginal education and the kinds of policies that have been implemented over the past few decades have Really amplified the lack of equity in regional remote locations, really to the detriment of First Nations students, and that the level of support from, um, dedicated expert Aboriginal teams is minimal, um, and that, that has actually diminished. It hasn't gotten better. It's gotten worse over time.
0: Senior lecturer at Curtin University, Dr. Solkarnovsky Day, speaking with NARDA Medias, Gerard Matza. You're listening to the WAIA, Independent Current Affairs on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Armidale on 2 FM, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. While airlines are currently required to have two or more pilots per flight, commercial airlines are trying to push for single-pilot flights in order to cut costs. A poll conducted by the Australian and International Pilots Association shows 89% of Australians would feel less safe boarding a flight with one pilot controlling instead of two or more. The Wire's Merced Hernandez asks Safety and Technical Director of AIPA, Steve Cornell, Why is this issue? So relevant.
5: Uh, we think it's important that there's a, a greater awareness of this in Australia, because as the polling also found, those that are aware of it, 90% would feel less safe boarding an aircraft with one with only one pilot at control. Uh, these proposals are being pushed by uh, airlines or aircraft manufacturers at the moment, with the help of uh, those associated regulators, and uh, we think it's an unsafe Thing and needs to be uh, stopped early.
4: Are the airlines really in a situation where they need to cut costs by reducing the number of crew?
5: Well, I think cost is certainly one aspect of it. The other issue that's happening in aviation at the moment is there is a global shortage of the pilots. That's partly come around as a result of management decisions that airlines around the world that have made the prospect of an airline career, yes, it's less attractive to young people. So we think rather than... Uh, Know, pursuing this avenue of reducing pilots from the flight deck, which reduces safety, we need to be looking at ways we can make the career of a pilot more attractive.
4: What are some of the issues that might arise if the single pilot operations were to become commonplace?
5: Okay, well, there's probably it's quite a few issues, but the whole premise of safety in aviation is built around the concept of redundancy. You know, air- aircraft have at least uh, two engines, some of them have four, but at least two. We have dual hydraulic systems, uh, redundancy in electrical systems, etc., and that redundancy stretches through to the flight deck, where we have two crew on the flight deck. So, in the normal circumstance, where you have two pilots in the controls, if one of those pilots was to become incapacitated, which thankfully is a rare event, the other pilot is there, and that other pilot is fully qualified, and they're able to take over in that limited situation, land the aircraft by themselves. So that's one issue
4: that could arise. If there were to be the single pilots and that issue would arise, is there anything in place for the passengers and the crew to be kept safe?
5: Well, we, we do train for that at the moment. We train uh, for the situation where one pilot becomes incapacitated and the other pilot uh, can land the aircraft by themselves. As I said, that is, that is a rare event. But the other issue that arises is that, you know, pilots themselves are humans and do make errors. And the idea of having two crew on the flight deck is that we have another person sitting next to us who can cross-check us, and that way we can catch and mitigate against any errors.
4: What is the IPA doing now to combat this issue? And if the airlines move forward with this policy, how much pushback are you expecting from the pilots? Could we see any union strikes from this?
5: Uh, well, at the moment, at APA what we're doing is trying to make the community more aware of it. Uh, we do think it's something that's going to become a factor in the medium term, Um, we're not certainly not looking at any industrial action at this stage. This is an information campaign to get the word out there that this is the concept that's coming in the the medium future.
4: To find out more about people's thoughts on this issue, I asked some about how comfortable they would be flying with one pilot instead of two. So how often do you fly? Uh, how do I answer that? I fly a lot.
2: Um, like within Australia, I fly about maybe three to four times a year.
4: Every
5: four to five
4: years. Would you be comfortable if you knew there was only one pilot instead of two?
2: No, I'd rather two pilots. (laughs) To be honest, I never knew that there had to be more than one pilot. So as long as I get to the other side of the world safe, I'm happy. No, like it would be very uncomfortable because I believe that like the... Piloting needs two people so that they can co-work the engineering and the flying and you know just sitting in the in in the uh in the flying boot. like you know they need to be two so that they can talk otherwise if it was one person like they would be very exhausted tired and might even sleep while you know flying.
0: The wires Mercedes Hernandez with that report. For more information about this issue you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. 2024 is just around the corner, and big corporations are getting ready to renew their boards through their annual general meetings. The big four banks are not the exception, and market forces and shareholders are demanding the banks to stop funding fossil fuel projects to reduce carbon emissions. While there's progress on this issue, much more needs to be done. I asked Australian Bank's campaigner from market forces Carl Robertson how banks are reacting their
2: campaign? Well, we're reaching a crisis point with climate change. You're seeing the impacts of this in Australia in just the last few years. We've had major floods and major bushfires which have destroyed huge parts of the country. And the banks have been financing this problem by funding new expanded fossil fuel projects that are driving climate change and making it worse. But we have seen some progress in the last 12 months. And the short answer to the question is that progress is being made, but not fast enough. The banks have made some strides, They have ruled out uh, more fossil fuel projects or more new and expanded fossil fuel projects in the last 12 months, and they have restricted finance to the companies that are developing those projects and driving climate change but it's not happening fast enough. So could you please
0: expand a little bit more on the letter shareholders sent to the Commonwealth Bank?
2: Ahead of its annual general meeting this year, over 350 shareholders signed a letter out and sent it to the Commonwealth Bank Board. This was acknowledging the recent progress the bank had made on climate, but still warning the bank that there's a long way to go uh, before it's aligned with its own climate commitments. The letter spoke to a few of the positive signs we've seen from ComBank recently, Firstly, in 2022, we saw a massive reduction in overall fossil fuel lending from ComBank, which was a solid indicator that uh, they were finally starting to take their climate commitment seriously. And the second point was that ComBank, uh, in its latest policy announcement, committed to effectively no longer bank most fossil fuel companies that don't have a plan to reduce their emissions that are aligned with the world's climate goals from 2025. So we effectively had an exit date from Commonwealth Bank from these climate-wrecking companies. So along with the shareholders that we work with, we acknowledge the progress that had been made, but noting that between now and 2025 is a long time, and we definitely put the ComBank board on notice that we won't accept another sense going to these climate-wrecking companies in the meantime.
0: What's the feedback you have received from shareholders about you know the big four banks not doing enough to stop fossil fuel projects?
2: Oh, as you can imagine, the shareholders we work with, which are just retail shareholders, everyday Australians, mum and dad kind of uh, shareholders, they're extremely worried about climate change. They're extremely worried about a safe future. Um, and they're extremely worried about banks and the financial institutions of Australia pouring money into massive new coal mines, massive new oil and gas fields that are fueling climate disasters like bushfires that are raging across Australia and around the world. Um, and they want to see these banks start to get their act together and actually start acting in accordance with what is required for a safe climate. So that's the main feedback we've received from shareholders. They have been pleased in recent months to see the progress that the banks are making towards cutting off finance for these climate-wrecking companies, and they are pleased to see the fruits of their labour.
0: So if the four big banks are still funding these projects and they're ignoring the shareholders' requests, what are the alternative options for shareholders?
2: So I would say that shareholders are actually having a lot of impact on the banks. In the years that we've been working on them, we've pushed the banks from having rampant, no restrictions on financing new and expanded fossil fuel projects to actually having some restrictions in place that are fairly good, but still not enough. And shareholders have effectively worked with us to make this happen. And it is a huge testament to people-powered movement that this has occurred. Beyond just the shareholder work that we do, though, shareholders have options available to them that are escalatory, so we have seen Commonwealth Bank shareholders take ComBank to the federal court over apparent breaches of its fossil fuel uh, lending policy. We've seen that result in positive changes from ComBank. Just yesterday, an ANZ shareholder also took ANZ uh, to the federal court with a claim that they were failing to manage climate risk. There are a range of options that shareholders can take to put pressure on the bank.
0: So we're just around the corner for 2024. Time flies. And what is market, I know, what is market forces expecting from financial corporations to do to achieve their emissions target?
2: So we have seen the last 12 months, significant progress made from the banks based on where they were at. We now have from ComBank, NAB and Westpac, effective exit dates from companies that are pursuing new and expanded fossil fuel projects. They all have a commitment to be out by at least the end of 2025. As you can imagine, that's a two-year wait for our for shareholders, for customers, and for the community at large. And given the bank's recent history of financing these companies and projects, we're incredibly nervous about what they may do in that time. So our message to the banks would be very simple, which is, don't finance these companies in the meantime, don't finance these projects in the meantime and act in line with your climate commitments before 2025. That
0: West Australian Bank's campaigner from Market Forces, Carl Robertson. Have you checked out The Wire? It's your national
4: current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view current affairs with a difference don't miss the wire daily on community and indigenous radio across australia
0: and unfortunately that's the end of the show today thanks so much for listening wherever you're in australia the wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SER in sydney radio adelaide 3 triple Z, 4 triple Z and Radio 4EB in Brisbane, with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbo and Jagara countries where this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal Elders past, present and emerging. Today The Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan, thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.